Hello, this is Zach. Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. I asked you last week to pray along with me as I think about ways that I can expand this ministry this year, and I hope that you're doing that. I, I welcome your prayers, and I welcome uh, your support. Uh, just drop drop me a note. Let me know maybe what I can be doing better, or if you have, you have ideas for how to expand this, please let me know that as well. So send me an email, Zach at CreedalCatholic.com. That's Z-A-C at CreedalCatholic.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, so on today's episode, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm actually going to be releasing on this feed uh, under the umbrella of Credo Catholic, an episode that we're also releasing as a part of Vernacular Podcast, our sister podcast that I do with my wife, Sally. And what we're talking about in this episode is abortion. This is something, obviously, that should be very near and dear to the heart of every Catholic as we stand for and defend life at all stages, uh, from conception to natural death. And in this episode, specifically, we talk about some of the ways that our abortion, uh, our, our language around abortion advocacy and activism has changed and how that's a really bad thing. Um, if you want to hear a more fleshed out explanation that's a bit longer on, uh, the, on Roe v. Wade in 1973, the, the Supreme Court decisions, um, physical, medical, social, legal effects on women and society more broadly, go check out um, on the vernacular feed an episode that we did on January 22nd, 2019, a year ago. But January 22nd is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, which is why we released it on the 22nd last year. It's also a day for us to step back and, and take an opportunity to reflect on um, the many lives that have been lost due to abortion, on the many women who feel like they are trapped and have no other option, and, and to pray for them and to pray for the protection of life at all stages, but especially uh, the life of the unborn. You may or may not know that the, the January 22nd um, in, the, uh, uh, in the U.S. is actually a dedicated day of prayer for the legal protection of unborn children. Um, and it's actually highlighted in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the GERM, G-I-R-M, number 373. It says, in all the dioceses of the United States of America, January 22nd shall be observed as a particular day of prayer for the full restoration of the legal guarantee of the right to life and of penance for violations to the dignity of the human person committed through acts of abortion. So practically speaking, what this means is, A, if, if at all possible, attend Mass and and offer your offer the Mass for um, the protection of unborn children. Um, if that's not possible, then please set aside some time during the day. It could be just you know praying through the rosary, but uh, set aside some time to pray for that intention. Uh, and third, um, as the germ says, it's a day of penance for violations to the dignity of human life. And and what you can do is is uh, offer a sacrifice. You can maybe give up meat that day. You can give up processed sugar. You can um, forgo something that you would otherwise enjoy and, and offer up that sacrifice um, uh, for the um, for for reparation, essentially. Um, so wanted to make you aware of that. Also, there's a nine-day novena called Nine Days for Life that is sponsored by the USCCB. This starts on January 21st. Um, I have a link to this in the show notes, um, but starts on January 21st, goes through the 29th. It's a nine-day novena called Nine Days for Life, and again, sponsored by the USCCB. So that's another very um, good thing that you can do, that you can add to your personal prayer life, and I highly encourage you to do that. Fundamentally, we believe as Catholics that we need to protect, as I mentioned, the human life at all stages from conception to natural death. January 22nd is a great opportunity for us to focus on the unborn. Um, and it's a great opportunity for us to renew our commitment as Catholics to continue to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Um, our Lord is very near to those who cannot 
fight for themselves to those who are vulnerable, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who um, are small. And uh, unborn children are perhaps the best example of human persons who cannot feed themselves or clothe themselves or provide for themselves. And so they deserve our support. Um, now, as I mentioned in this podcast, that doesn't mean that we just simply focus on making abortion illegal. That also means that we need to focus on providing resources for women and young families who feel like they're trapped in a situation where they have to get an abortion because that's a horrible, horrible thing and nobody should ever ever be in that situation. So we talk about that a little bit in, in this podcast episode, but I want to encourage you that this is not a one front fight. Uh, the protection of the dignity of the human person does extend from conception to natural death and protecting babies who are still in the womb also means um, protecting and defending and fighting for uh, the women who are carrying those babies. So I want to give you that, that gentle reminder uh, and uh, use that as an intro to the podcast here. I'll be back next week with more um, info uh, more information, more programming. And I'm really excited about some of the episodes that we have coming up. I will just leave that teaser there, but I will tell you that I did lock down our guest interview the, or to review the two popes. So that, uh, interview is coming soon. Uh, and we'll also be talking about the canonization of John Henry Newman with someone who was there on the scene for it. So lots of exciting stuff coming up beginning next week. Uh, until then enjoy the show. Please join me in prayer for the protection of the unborn and the support of all the mothers who are carrying babies. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today on the episode, or on this episode, we have a commemoration of a pretty sobering anniversary. January 22nd is right around the corner. And on January 22nd, we recognize the anniversary every year of 1973 uh, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in the United States. This is something that people on... Uh, on different sides of the political aisle look at very differently. If you are a pro-choice advocate, you look at 1973 as a watershed year for women's rights. If you are a pro-life advocate, you look at 1973 as a year that initiated a, a waterfall of tragedy uh, in many respects. And we, we're, we're going to dive into this a little bit more today, but I want to encourage you to go back and look at January 22nd, 2019 on this podcast feed. Sally and I re-released an episode about Roe v. Wade and about abortion specifically that we originally had put together in 2016. And if you go listen to that, you can hear us talk about some of the the legal um, implications of this, some of the moral issues, and some of the issues about abortion's impact on women, which is something you don't hear enough about. But we feel very strongly about those things and want to spread awareness of them. So go back and listen to that January 22nd, 2019 for our re-release of our original 2016 episode. But just briefly, and you'll hear these statistics if you go listen to that episode, um, if you look at the numbers of abortions that have been done since the legalization of abortion in Roe v. Wade, the numbers are pretty horrifying. From 1973 to 2011, nearly 53 million legal abortions occurred. As a frame of reference, that's greater than the entire population of South Korea. Or, in more familiar terms, if you were to take the combined populations of New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego... Dallas and San Jose, and then multiply that number by two, you still wouldn't reach 53 million. And I think it's worth pointing out that those statistics are circa 2011, but they're from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice advocacy organization. So this is not from some right-wing pro-life organization that's trying to make abortion sound more horrifying than it is. This is from a pro-choice think tank, the Guttmacher Institute. So really, really horrifying stuff there. 
Um, as we talk about in our previous episode, I mean, the crux of the issue is, is an unborn child a human life? And uh, if it is, then it's a pretty horrifying thing that we've seen 53 million abortions up to this point. Um, by any other metric, that number is a genocide 20 times over. Um, so really, really important stuff to talk about and to be aware of and to fight for. Um, but what we want to talk about today is how we've seen a shift in the conversation about abortion, especially on the pro-choice side of the aisle, where we're no longer talking about abortion in, a, in what's called a safe, legal, rare paradigm. That's a phrase that was originally coined by Bill Clinton in 1992. Bill Clinton, of course, uh, one of the great compromise artists of American politics. But he came up with this to basically appease both sides of the aisle, saying to the pro-choicers, look, I agree with you that it should be legal. I agree with you that it should be safe. Uh, and then saying to the pro-lifers, I agree with you that it should be rare, right? So we can all kind of get along and, and agree on this stuff. And for 15, 20, maybe even 25 years, that was kind of the governing paradigm of how we talked about abortion in this country. And even though we couldn't all agree on all three of those things, we could all at least agree on one of them, and that was that abortion should be rare. Maybe even two of them, right? That abortion should be safe. You know, even um, most pro-life advocates, uh, us certainly, would say that if abortions happen, we want them to be safe. We don't want them to also kill the mother, right? I mean, right. so we can agree on two of those three things. And if you're pro-choice, you'll agree that they should be at least safe and legal. Um, but ideally, I mean, even if you're pro-choice, you you would agree that they they should be rare. Even in 2007, Hillary Clinton, when she was obviously running for president, eventually lost in the general election or in the primary to Barack Obama. Even she said at a Democratic presidential forum that she thinks abortion should be safe, legal and rare. And she followed that up with, and by rare, I mean rare. So that was 12 years, uh, I guess, almost 13 years ago. Not not the too distant past. But now we're in a point where that is shifting and it's shifting pretty rapidly. Um, last October, Tulsi Gabbard, who I think she's still a candidate uh, for president. I don't think she's ceased her campaign. Yeah, but, I'm not sure. But she's not getting a lot of traction. So uh, hence why I'm not even sure if she's still running a campaign. But she made a statement in October that she thinks abortion should be safe, legal and rare. And she was immediately lambasted. Well, I think she quoted Hillary Clinton. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a Clinton phrase. Um, and uh, she was lambasted for that. Because now pro-choice advocates are often, I'm not saying, this is not a blanket statement about all of them, but but many of them are now saying, we don't need to say that it's rare anymore. Because if we say that abortion should be rare, then we're saying something, we're implying something about its morality. Um, or we're stigmatizing it. Or we're stigmatizing it. Yeah, exactly. And so what we're seeing now is a shift from the recognition of pro-choice advocates that abortion is not an ideal thing, but sometimes a necessary thing, hence the safe legal rare to now this like ridiculous proclamation that abortion is somehow an unqualified good, something morally praiseworthy, or at the very least, something that's morally neutral. Just in the past few months, we've seen at least three examples of this safe, legal, and no longer rare paradigm, this new paradigm. And the first one is most recent. Just at the Golden Globes, Michelle Williams received an award for Best Actress. And in her acceptance speech, she she said that she would not have been able to get where she was in her career without employing a woman's right to choose. And she went on to say that she hopes that everyone will continue to vote for a woman's right to choose and for... Um, all women to be able to have access to abortion. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot to talk about here. So let me just play a brief excerpt of the clip and then we can discuss Michelle Williams' comments. And I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. <laughs> to choose when to have my children and with whom 
when I felt supported and able to balance our lives, knowing as all mothers know that the scales must and will tip towards our children. Now, I know my choices might look different than yours, but thank God or whomever you pray to that we live in a country founded on the principle that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. So women, 18 to 118, when it is time to vote, please do so in your own self-interest. It's what men have been doing for years. All right, Sally. So a lot to talk about there, I think. The first thing I want to point out is just the applause that Michelle Williams gets when she says that she exercised the right to choose. And I think that's noteworthy because the applause is not for her ability to choose. You heard some scattered applause when she talked about the the good thing that it is that women can choose. There was some scattered applause, but the real applause line was when she said that she exercised the right to choose. She employed it. Yeah. She, oh, she employed it. Yeah. And I think in some ways, I think it sort of gives away the game because, um, you know, employing the right to choose is really just a euphemism for an abortion. And so it gives away the fact that people know this is something that's that's not a good thing, right? Not an, not an ideal thing, not the way things should be. So she has to use this euphemism to talk about what she did. And yet this is still an applause line that gets people gets people clapping. And you could hear at least one person shouting some things as well. And I think I heard, great job. I don't want to to say that definitively, but it sounded like someone said great job, which is just, it's a strange thing to applaud um, the, you know, to use her language, the employment of, of that choice. Right. And I, um, she, she said that while pregnant now with her second child. So she has one child that is living and another one um, that is living inside her womb. And um, we were talking before we started airing that she, she points out that she wants all women to be able to have a child with the person that they want and at the time that they want. And what she doesn't say, but what is implied is that she also is choosing the child that she wants. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating because she says it was so important for me to choose when to have my children and whom to have them with. But as you said, the third thing that she by definition chose that she doesn't talk about is that she also chose what children to have. Because she can't postpone the birth of a child until later. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when when you're pregnant with a child, that is the child. There's not going to be a replica of that child that comes along. It's not like if you choose to have an abortion, it'll just be that child version 2.0 the next time around. That is a child. At the very least, you know, if you disagree with me on the science, then you, you might say that that is like the beginnings of a human life. But it's the beginnings of a human life that are distinctive from the beginnings of the next human life that will be there next time. Right. So, yes, you're choosing when and with whom to have your children. And I get that. And I understand that impulse for Michelle Williams. But you are you, the problem is you're also choosing what children to have. And and by definition, when you're choosing what children to have, you're also choosing what children not to have. And that, when you when you think about it that way, is just such a tragic idea. And it, it just commodifies the relationship between the, the parents, the mother, and her children, which is sad as well. I think what's also sad is that she just kind of ignores the fact that a lot of people, even when those things are in place, the right man and the right time, they they actually don't have that much choice over their fertility and they're not able to have the children that they want to have when they want to have them because for whatever reason, um, it's it doesn't happen for them. So I think that is also kind of a an oversight on her part. Yeah. Um, another oversight is just that it's um, she she implies that her career would not be where it was if she hadn't gotten an abortion and she doesn't even consider the idea of adoption. And I understand that 
bearing a child for nine months and then giving birth is a lot to ask of anyone. And it's, it, it can be a huge ordeal, um, and often horrifying, um, in many ways, but, uh, she doesn't consider that that could be an, an option for some people that, that giving your child up for adoption to someone who can't have their own child could actually be a wonderful gift to give to someone. Um, and it's just, it's sad that she, that that's not even a consideration. Why can't we also vote for more options for adoption or for adoption tax credits right. or, um, or for, for jobs that, that give women, um, more time pay off parental uh, leave, right? Pay parental leave or, um, that promise them that after their pregnancy is complete, they will be able to have their job back. Something like that. Yeah. You bring up a really good point, Sally. And I think that's a, that's so much of our conversation about this is based on a false binary. And the binary is basically either a woman has her children or she has a successful career, right? Um, and I understand, to some degree, I understand why Michelle Williams was in a position where she thought that if she had her children, then she wouldn't be able to have a career. We are behind, in America, we're behind the times on giving mothers parental leave, paid parental leave, especially so that they can be there for their children. And I'm sure in the acting world, more than any, it timing is a crucial factor. No doubt. Well, and also appearance, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, pregnancy does change your appearance. If you're, if you're in a, uh, in a culture, in a sort of, um, society or a micro society like Hollywood, that's based in large part, at least on visual appearance, like that, that matters. That's not insignificant, right? If, if your appearance is, uh, your livelihood or related to your livelihood, then something that changes your appearance for nine months can be difficult. You know, like people might not want to cast you in movies, for example, if they know that they're going to have to kind of shoot around your pregnancy. Right. So I, I understand that. Um, and I understand a point too about, about voting and how men have controlled the, the terms for so long. And I think that's in large part, correct. But again, it, it places this false binary on things, right? That the idea is either, we, ha we, we exercise our right to abortion whenever we want, or we continue to just be, be oppressed, right? There are other options. You mentioned adoption, Sally. You mentioned parental leave. We need to work and have constructive conversations about changing the way we think about motherhood and family life to make those things compatible with you know, what, we, what we now call in the modern day a career. Um, and so I, I'm sympathetic to that idea, and I think there's a kernel of truth there, but the false binary that she presents and the fact that people applaud her for actually having an abortion rather than recognizing, oh, this is really serious that Michelle Williams was in a position where she felt like it was necessary to have an abortion. That should never be the case. That's, I think, you know, the driving logic between the rare idea, right? That, that it should not be the case that any woman ever feels like she has to have an abortion. So how can we attack it from that side of things? How can we make sure that women feel supported even if they don't have a, you know, a romantic partner who's committed to raising their, ch their child with them? How can we how can we make them feel supported? How can we make sure the government won't leave them high and dry? How can we, you know, give tax credits and other incentives for civil society to rally around women like this so that they don't feel like they're in that position? But unfortunately, now we find ourselves where we've stuck ourselves in this false binary. And the only outcome, reasonably speaking, for a pro-choice advocate is that we get rid of the rare side of safe, legal and rare, and we just make it safe, legal and good. Yeah. And I, and, um, and free, or at least not taxing uh, financially. Right. And I think too, that part of taking away the stigma and the, um, the social stain of having an abortion is not admitting any sort of regret or, um, or any wish that you, you wouldn't have been in that sort of position. 
and probably not even wanting to talk about how you felt forced into it. Um, she wants to praise the choice as a good choice that she chose for herself. And there was no pressure. There was no, no feeling of being, being coerced. Right. And so I think even starting that conversation is going to be dead in the water for people who are now no longer wanting abortion to be rare. I think you're right. Well, let's pivot to another example that we have. You mentioned we had three, Sally. So the second example is from comedian Michelle Wolf, who has a Netflix special. It's pretty new. I think it's been on the platform for a month or two. And she has a brief little routine about abortion in this that um, I think is downright horrifying. Now, I mentioned that um, I was sympathetic to Michelle Williams to, to some degree and the fact that she thought it was necessary for her to have an abortion. And I think that's absolutely tragic. And we need to talk about how women, how we can make women not feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But this Michelle Wolf example is completely different from that. This takes um, the extreme side of what we've been talking about, that abortion is actually an unqualified good, something that you should just try, just like, you know, trying beer for the first time or something like this. So this is how, this is how callously some pro-choice ab- activists and advocates are talking about abortion now. Abortion in a real way. We talk about it in a very legislative way, but not in a real way. So I think a lot of women have a lot of apprehension surrounding it. You know, we talk about it so negatively that you feel like you should have this sense of shame after you get an abortion. Well, you can feel any way you want after you get an abortion. Get one. See how you feel. <laughs> you know how my abortion made me feel? Very powerful. You know how people say you can't play God? I walked out of there being like, move over, Morgan Freeman. I am God. And then I crossed the street very carefully. So when I first heard this, I was, to be honest, at a loss for words because I just don't know how to respond to something that is that callous about such an important issue that affects literally millions of people on both the mother and the baby side of things. Um, after further reflection and thinking about it, I really think that this is, um, pretty diabolical. I think that it is, um, it's also sad that this is a comedian who has a, an international platform via Netflix and who is, uh, getting significant applause in the most horrifying parts of this routine where she's encouraging people just get one, see how you feel, or even worse to my mind, um, insisting that, you know, she feels like playing God. And in the same way that I talked about Michelle Williams using, employing a euphemism to talk about abortion and how that kind of gives away the game, I think this kind of gives away the game as well when she's talking about how it made her feel powerful and feel like playing God, right? When, um, you know, if, if the baby in utero is just a clump, of, a clump of cells akin to, you know, your fingernail, then, um, you know, whenever you clip your fingernails, people don't say that's playing God, right? <laughs> but people will say you're playing God if you're choosing who lives and who dies. Right. And so she's at least suggesting that it's a potential human life. Absolutely. She's implying that it's at least potential, if not actual. And that um, is the most alarming to me because yeah. because it's not the it's not just a clump of cells. It is a potential human life. And she recognizes that. And yet she's still encouraging people to just go do it. Yeah. I also think. I'm not sure I believe her that she is willing to allow people to have whatever feelings they want after having an abortion. Um, I think that if we are dropping rare from the paradigm, then 
a woman who has an abortion and feels a lot of regret, maybe even guilt, whether, you know, misplaced, um, but feels badly that she had an abortion and wishes that she hadn't and is haunted by it, those would be bad feelings to have. Those would be feelings that I I would think that Michelle Wolf would say were pushed on her by other people. And um, so I I don't think that she's actually willing to allow people to feel whatever they want to feel. She, she wants them to feel the right way, quote unquote. She wants them to feel happy and powerful and at least satisfied and not regretful at all. Yeah. And I think that's a really good segue into our third example. Um, So on this line about not wanting people to feel regret or shame and wanting to destigmatize this entirely. So that having an abortion is, you know, akin to like choosing the color of a new car. Um, there's a website. This is the third example that we have. Sally found this uh, just the other day. I was not aware of this prior to this, but it's called Shout Your Abortion. Um, shoutyourabortion.com. And the idea behind this is that you should, no kidding, shout your abortion and tell everyone how wonderful it's been. So if you go to shoutyourabortion.com, you, you'll see these, these stories. Let me read you some of the headlines here. We could have been okay. Instead, we are happy because they had an abortion. Twice and don't regret it. I did what was best for me. That kind of gives away the game again, I think. I refuse to bring my child into the world when I have nothing to give them. Also gives away the game, uh, referring to the unborn baby as my child. Um, how to give yourself an abortion. I regret it, not the abortion, but not doing it sooner and letting people manipulate me. Um, there, that speaks to the regret. I think you're not allowed to regret yeah, exactly. having the abortion. No shame, no guilt. There's another story. So uh, they, have, they have anonymous and named authors who contribute these things. Um, but the idea is you can join the movement and I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It has one of those infinite scroll designs and there is not an end to this that I'm seeing, Sally. This is uh, hundreds of testimonials about how wonderful uh, people's abortions were. And one of the founders, it was Amelia Bono or Bono. She was one of the ones who responded to Representative Gabbard after she said she wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, right. and said that she should never use that word rare. Um, she may have even said that she was stuck in the 90s, but somebody definitely said that she was stuck in the 90s. Yeah. So this is our third example, again, of how we've moved from a safe, legal, rare paradigm to to diametrically opposing paradigms now, one of which says uh, no abortion ever, and one of which says no abortion is actually a good thing, or at the very least morally neutral. Um, and if it's morally neutral or good, there's no reason why it should be rare at all. So, so dropping the rare is a logical consequence of the way that pro-choice advocates are starting to think about abortion. So if you're listening to this and you are not pro-life like Sally and I are, I mean, our position is that, um, one abortion is too many. And now we also recognize though, that we don't do a good enough job taking care of mothers, especially single moms, uh, unwed mothers who don't have the means to take care of the baby. We need to do a much better job taking care of them. And so, um, there is a, there's, there's that whole side of the, the problem to tackle. And we talk about that a little bit in our podcast that we released in 2016 originally. So that's our position that one abortion is too many. But even if you don't agree with us on that, the point of this episode is to help you understand that we need to have abortions be rare. We can't be talking about abortions, which are very serious, no matter how you look at it. They're serious because at the very least, they impact the mom and leave you know emotional scars that that are difficult to, to carry. Um, and they're difficult for the baby, or at least a potential human life, uh, as Sally has pointed out. 
So the point of this podcast, if you don't already agree that one abortion is too many, is that we want you to at least hold to the position, hold to the position that abortion should be rare. This is not an unqualified good. This is something that, um, in the in the best case scenario, uh, for a pro-choice advocate, should be something that's viewed as unfortunately necessary. Right? That there is a single mom here who is already working overtime just to provide for herself. And she can't possibly afford the unpaid time to go into labor and take care of her baby and then the child care for her baby, et cetera. That is the type of situation in which abortion uh, by the most strident of pro-choice advocates should be viewed as unfortunately necessary. Right. Or another example where, um, you know, the mother's health is threatened. Right. Something like that. But this should never be something that we are casually encouraging, um, you know, comedian uh, comedy show attendees to just go ahead and try. This is something where the stakes are much more serious um, and much more grave. So help us change the conversation. One, if you're pro-life, let's engage more with our pro-choice friends and talk to them about how we can collaborate on providing better support for mothers who think that they're in situations like this. Let's work through our voting and through our own workplaces to enact policies that are friendly to working mothers and mothers who are pregnant, uh, extending uh, you know, paid parental leave, providing telecommute options. There are, there are so many things that we can do here. Better health insurance, for example. Um, so let's work to do those things. If you're on the pro-choice side, help us to encourage people to, at the very, very least, make abortion rare. Yeah, and I also think that if the effort now is to reduce the stigma surrounding abortion, we need to be working harder to reduce the stigma around pregnancy. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. So many women who are pregnant, they are looked down upon or they're looked at as less than the woman they were before or as weaker or unable to do their job to the same degree that they were before. And I just think that we need to do a better job of promoting a positive vision of pregnancy and and how that empowers women and that how a woman is powerful through the ability to give birth and to bring another life into the world it's a great point you know on our one of our sister podcasts breaking pod uh josh and i just talked about an episode where skylar white who you probably remember as walter's wife is looked down upon by her potential employer for being pregnant and this is something that I think is much more common than we realize. So yeah, working to reduce the stigma around pregnancy is a very important part of that conversation. If you have any comments on what we forgot, what we left out, what we should have said, what we didn't say, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more uh, content. We're going to do a winter watch, read, listen episode with some recommendations for you. So we'll be, we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.